We are in, um, uh, what is it, week, week five, I think, of our seven signs. Uh, we've got two more weeks after this. Um, uh, next week, we'll be looking at the uh, healing of the blind individual. And then on Easter, we're going to be finishing our series of seven signs, doing something a little different for Easter, but very appropriate. We'll be looking at Jesus' seventh sign in the Gospel of John, which is the late raising from the dead of Lazarus, which is, uh, which is in its own way an Easter story, uh, and really, in a lot of ways, uh, tells the Easter story, uh, uh, sets, is a foreshadowing to the Easter story. So we'll be talking about Easter and the resurrection of Jesus through the lens of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead, and that'll be happening on Easter. But today, we're going to be looking at one more sign, one more miracle of Jesus, the walking on water. Before we do that, um, I want to pose a question uh, just for us to think about. If you were to describe yourself, or more importantly, let me put it like this. If you were to have a tagline, what would it be? All right. All great, uh, you know, characters often have a tagline, either something that's said about them or something they're known for saying. Uh, if you were to have a nice little tagline, uh, what would it be? Something that would communicate who you are, something that would communicate um, what you're, you know, what you bring to the world. Uh, if you're a superhero, you know, what your power is, what your personality is. All these superheroes uh, are, are, have different personalities and powers. I was thinking about some of the taglines. I, I, I did a Google search. You, you might recognize some of these. Um, I don't know. If you're if you're online in the chat or if you're here, any people who like superheroes, like fan of superhero movies, am I going to be the only one? Um, okay, a few. Whew. Okay, a few here. I, I'll have to check the chat to see what you all said. Uh, there, I'm not even going to ask how many people are disappointed that my opening illustration is about superheroes. Uh, I don't want to know, but uh, I'm sure you're here as well. And, and, and my apologies, but you know, uh, there's a, some great taglines, and you might know them. Um, like if I said, uh, "Avengers Assemble." Who's, uh, whose line would that be? Does anyone know? Captain America. Yeah, you can just shout it out or you can put it in the chat online. Captain America. One of the things I love about Captain America is his power. He's strong. He's got like an indestructible shield and all sorts of stuff. But like his power is really his character. And through his character, he's able to like bring people together or he inspires trust. That's one of the things I love about Captain America. So, you know, Avengers assemble, bringing people together makes sense for him. Uh, how about Cowabunga? Oh, that's the easy one, right? Ninja Turtles, uh, uh, fun. Uh, this one's obvious, uh, Hulk smash. It's fantastic because, you know, it's, it's literally just one word sentences. Um, he refers to himself as a third person, like, you know, silly people do. Like he's not super bright when he's in as the Hulk and it's just like smash, you know, like that's just really perfect for his personality. Uh, of course, you know, this one, it's a bird, it's a plane, it's Superman, of course. Uh, this one I actually didn't know. I'm assuming it's from earlier movies or, or most likely from the comic books, which I, I'm not a comic book reader. But I am vengeance. I am the knight. I am... Anyone? Batman. And you could probably guess it if you haven't heard it. Like, that's Bat. I am vengeance. I am the knight. This one, of course, easy. Your friendly neighborhood... Spider-Man. Yeah, it's super great. Now... The tagline for each superhero has to match kind of who they are, their personality, oftentimes their power. Uh, it has to match kind of like just their identity. And uh, you can't really interchange them, can you? Like the, the, if the Incredible Hulk, you know, yelled cowabunga, it'd be kind of funny. Um, and, and you wouldn't say your friendly neighborhood Batman. Like that's not Batman. And you certainly wouldn't say, I am vengeance, I am the knight, I am the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Like, it's just like that doesn't make sense. Today, we're going to look at if there was ever a tagline, there was ever a, a, 
a saying, a catchphrase for God, specifically in the scriptures, what would it be? And as we look at these signs and these miracles, this one in particular sets God up as a powerful person. It sets Jesus up as a powerful person who has a tagline and some even some special powers. And you get this very comic-like book experience in this story. So let's look at it. If you have your Bible, you can follow along. We're going to be in John chapter 6, verses 15 to 24. Um, and we're going to start with verse 15. And uh, if you have the handout in person, I think I left off the first verse. I think I started at 16. My apologies. But it'll be on the screen, um, and uh, you can follow along that way. So here's what it is, John chapter 6. Now this story, I'm going to read it here in a second, but this story happens right in the middle of what we looked at last week. Last week was this miracle where Jesus provided bread and fish for thousands of people. It said 5,000 men, which we know they had women and children with them, and that's just how people were counted back in that time. Women and children weren't counted. So there was lots more than 5,000 people, and he provided bread and fish for all of them. And then the crowds wanted to make him king, and they were really impressed by that. They wanted, this is the type of king we would want. And uh, Jesus then decides, I'm not going to be the king. I'm not going to do that. So Jesus goes away. And uh, this is what happens. So Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. You see, the miracle of the bread, we looked at this last week, is, was such clearly a sign. Everyone saw it as a sign. It wasn't just a miracle. They're like, oh, we know who Jesus is. And they got it, sort of. They saw it, and they, they, they saw it as the wrong kind of sign. They thought, this guy should be a king. The reality is Jesus was a king, but not the kind of king that, uh, that they were looking for. They wanted him to overthrow Rome. They wanted him to, you know, be a physical provider, a source for all of their needs in a very practical way. And Jesus like, no, 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 I'm actually, my mission is a little different than that. Jesus will be the king who eventually is arrested hung on a cross, buried, and comes back to life. That's the type of king Jesus was going to be, but they, they, they weren't interested in that kind of king. They wanted someone who would give them free bread, free food. So Jesus does the unexpected at the height of his popularity. I mean, this is one of the larger crowds Jesus is, is speaking to, and they loved him in this moment. Jesus was never more popular than the miracle with the bread and the fish. And at the height of his popularity, he says, uh, all right, I'm getting off social media. You know, I'm, I'm checking out. And he goes off to be by himself. The question I have to ask you is, what do you do when people think that you're, you know, you're something that you're not? When you get praise that maybe is misplaced, you look a little better than you actually are. You, you fall into a category where it's like, wow, that was really impressive. Do you lean into that? Or do you step away from it? It's, it's, it's tempting to be viewed as someone really great. Whether it's misunderstood or not, it's tempting to be viewed as someone who's really great and to leverage that and to use that. But Jesus here says, no, 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 no. I'm not giving into that temptation. In fact, it was a temptation. We know it's a temptation because Jesus experienced temptation uh, in Matthew chapter 4, where Satan takes him out of the wilderness and tempts him. He tempts him with bread, ironically enough. You know, you could turn this rock into bread. But one of the things he tempts him is like, hey, if you do what I say, I'll make you ruler of everything. I'll make you a local king. I'll make you really, really popular, really, really powerful. 
And Jesus is like, no. He says no to the temptation then, and he says no to her right now. So when Jesus, uh, what made Jesus great, I think, honestly, is his willingness to not give in to the temptation to be seen as such. He leaves. He goes, and he clears his head. Verse 16, here's what happens. So when evening came, his disciples went down to the lake. Now, Jesus is off doing his own thing. He's, he's gone. He's doing his own thing. But they go down to the lake where they'd, uh, they got into a boat and they set off across the lake for Capernaum. Now it was dark and Jesus had not yet joined them. So Jesus is still doing his own thing. The disciples are on their own. They're like, all right, well, we'll cross the lake. And while they're doing it, verse 18, a strong wind was blowing and the waters grew rough. In the Old um, Testament and throughout history and in a lot of cultures, Rough waters is a metaphor, and this is, a, this is significant in this story. This idea of the chaos of water is, is a big deal, and it's found throughout the Old Testament. It's found in other cultures. It's something that we still relate to. People still talk about things like the lighthouse. We have entire worship songs built around Jesus is our lighthouse, um, and we have stories about how a lighthouse will direct somebody through the storm. There's parables and, and fantastic novels all built around the chaos of the sea. Because if you've ever been in a boat, especially a small one, and the water gets rough and it's difficult, it becomes a perfect metaphor for what life can feel like at times. If you've ever wanted to feel powerless, get in a kayak on a lake with big waves. I mean, you just, you just feel powerless. There's this uh, great scene. I was going to show a clip from it, but uh, I watched it. And uh, I was like, man, I have to bleep way too many words. It's from the movie Good Will Hunting. Surprising number of cuss words in that movie, by the way. Fantastic movie. Uh, Robin Williams won an Oscar for it. And there's a scene that maybe helped him push, uh, push him towards the Oscar. It's, it's, it's just one of the great scenes of filmmaking. Um, it's a story, of course, about this young, brilliant guy who grew up in a rough neighborhood. He's super smart, but he's also super rough. And they want to help him get into a career where he can use his intelligence to study analytical math stuff. I mean, this guy's brilliant, played by Matt Damon. Well, they try to get him in, in, with a counselor, and he sees all these counselors that he's smarter than, and he kind of like humiliates them and makes them look stupid. So they try this other counselor, played by Robin, Robin Williams, who also comes from a kind of a rough background and can kind of like speak the language. And so they, they have this scene where he's is, is intake, and um, uh, Matt Damon uh, notices this painting on the wall of Robin Williams' office. Uh, can we put that? Do we have that painting? Can we put it up? Yeah, this, uh, this painting here. Uh, uh, Robin Williams says it looks stupid, but uh, Matt Damon starts looking at it. And if you remember this scene, or if you've seen this scene, he starts analyzing his counselor. This is kind of his MO. He wouldn't let people get close to him. So he starts analyzing it. And he says, oh, the, the, the look of the waves and the colors, like you must be really sh kind of struggling and you've been in a sea. And like he starts picking apart his counsel this Robin Williams character's counselor's life. He doesn't get it all right, but he gets close enough that it just irritates Robin Williams. He ends up throwing him up against the wall, if you remember the scene. And I think this is actually a really profound moment in the film and a really profound scene because there's something about that kind of image that we can all relate to. There's something about this, this idea of being in a boat with waves and they're crashing and what does that represent in our life? that we can really connect with. And the rest of the movie kind of builds off of this, like what, what, is the, what is the storm that you're going through? Can we put that image back up one more time? I, I want to ask you to just stop and think, if this was your painting and someone wanted to psychoanalyze it, what would they be telling about your life? Why would you paint something like this? You know, maybe, maybe it's not 
you. Maybe you've had a very calm life, and if you were to paint yourself in a boat, it'd be on a calm, crystal clear, clear lake. And, but I know there's somebody here, somebody watching, that sees this picture, and it's like, oh, man, if this was representing my life, I could tell you exactly what that season was. Chaos. Out of control. I feel powerless. Think about that. That's what the story is supposed to rise up within us, those memories, those feelings of chaos and difficulty. So think about that. What would be your story? Interestingly enough, this painting ended up selling for 90000 It was done by the, the director. That's just a tidbit. But uh, um, hold on to that. Think about that. What would be your story? All right, let's go on. Uh, verse 19 says this. They're in, the, they're in the waves. They're in the storm. When they rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water, and they were frightened. John six nineteen. So they're three to four miles away from the shore. They weren't near the shore. Uh, they can see Jesus, but they don't realize that it's him, and so they're, they're, they're afraid. But one of the things you got to, this individual, these disciples were not within swimming distance of the shore, not easily, especially in a storm. They're out in the middle of this lake. They're in a dangerous place. And Jesus shows up, and they're scared. And I just want to say that when God shows up in biblical stories, consistently, like 90% of the time, the reaction is fear. I mean, just the vast majority of the time when God shows up in someone's story in the Bible, the response is fear. Over and over again, this is no exception. God shows up and they're terrified. They were already kind of prone to be scared because they're in the middle of a storm, but it's like when they see a ghost figure coming over the water, they're even more scared. You know, I, I just want to challenge you as you experience God um, in your life and what that looks like. If you're not reaching a place in your relationship with God where you're like, I, this is too much. <laughs> what you're asking of me is too much. Your presence is too much. I don't know what, if, if this, is, this is what it often feels like to experience God. To find yourself in this, whether it's fear out of being terrified or fear out of a, just a sense of awe for who God is, there's this moment where you're like, this is one of the things we look for. We know that God is close. So verse 20, Jesus said to him, but he said to them, it is I, don't be afraid. One of the most common responses when God shows up in someone's life is do not be afraid. But this uh, passage in the NIV isn't being translated very well because um, there's actually something really profound happening here. It's translated, it is I. But in the Greek, a, a more accurate translation would be I am. And we talked about this last week. If you were with us, we talked about this idea of I am um, throughout the uh, um, uh, Old Testament, all the way back in Exodus chapter 3. Uh, Moses asked God, okay, who is sending me? And God says, I am that I am. In fact, the name Yahweh, the name for God in the Hebrew, looks very similar to the phrase I am. Yahweh comes from the phrase I am. The name that we have for God is very simply I am am. 
And so here is Jesus. You have to imagine the scene. The waves are tossing and turning, and there is a figure hovering above the water, walking upon the water. They see Jesus. They're terrified. And Jesus says, I am. Do not be afraid. At this moment in their story, in their life, as well as as we read it, as we relive it, there should be no question in our mind who Jesus is. Jesus doesn't say, it is I, as if that could be anyone. Jesus says, I am. If God was to have a catchphrase that encapsulated his power, what he brings, it's I am. And it's rather profound. You know, there's that old saying, I think, therefore I am. Here is uh, the Christian understanding of that. God is, therefore I am. The the Christian perspective of the world, of, of everything, is very simple. Before there was anything, there was God. That God is the source of all things. That I am here with you today and, and, and offer, you know, whatever it is I have to offer to the world, my presence, my prayers, my, all of these things. I have what I have and I have what I have to give because God is. That all things stem from God. The source of all things. Everything we see can be traced back to the being who is before anything else was. So when Jesus is walking on the water saying, I am, it's not an accident. Jesus was before anything was. In fact, later in John, I think it's in John, they're talking about Abraham and everyone loved Abraham. He was like the hero of their faith. And um, Abraham, Moses, these are the people they really looked up to in the, in the Jewish faith. I mean, these were, these were like significant, these were the patriarchs, these were the people. And they're talking about Abraham, and Jesus has this beautiful line where he hits this home again. He says, before Abraham was, I am. <laughs> I love the grammar of that sentence. Before Abraham was, I am. And it's no uh, surprise, uh, we had this verse up here for a second, let's put it back up. Um, now, uh, in, back in Genesis, um, we see this, that, the, that right, the first image we have of God is Genesis 1, chapter 2, and it says the earth was formed. I mean, it says God created the heavens and the earth, and then this verse happens. Like, this is the very beginning of the Bible. Now, the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Once again, Jesus hovering over the waters, walking towards us, not by mistake. Jesus is making a very profound statement about who Jesus is. So there's actually, um, let's go on to the next one. Um, We have this moment where Jesus is uh, really showing Jesus' Godhead. Jesus is God in the flesh. It's a very profound moment, but it's not the whole point of this episode. That that would be cool enough in and itself, but this is what... um, this is what happens. Verse 20, 21. It says, Then they were willing to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were headed. So don't miss this. The first miracle in this miracle story is that Jesus is walking on water, that Jesus is hovering over the waters, just like it talks about in Genesis 2, that Jesus declares that Jesus is God. I am. Do not be afraid. The second miracle is they reach the shore safely. Don't miss that. 
You know, ever since the, the, really ever since Genesis chapter one, but moving forward, ever since the Red Sea and being delivered, um, being delivered uh, from, by, and in, and through water is this significant part of the Jewish faith. I want to just share a couple of examples here, a couple of verses uh, to show you why this is so important. Psalm 107.30 says this, so they rejoiced because the waves had calmed down, then God led them to the harbor they were hoping for. This is how they viewed God, that God could take us safely to a harbor. Job 9, 8 talks about it like this, like you couldn't get more of a a sort of a a bigger picture of who God is. Stretched out, is referring to God, God stretched out the heavens alone and trod on the waves of the sea. Here's this Old Testament verse talking about how God would walk upon the water. Job 9, 8, uh, the next one. Uh, Isaiah 43, 2 says it this, uh, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When through the rivers, uh, they won't sweep over you. Story of crossing the Jordan River, story of the Red Sea. All of these are stories where God delivers them in, through, and, 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 and uh, from water. Psalm 77, 19 says it like this. Your way went straight through the sea. Your pathway went right through the mighty waters. But your footprints left no trace. This is the God that we follow will deliver you from the chaos of the seas, whatever that is for you, whether literal or otherwise. So the first miracle is Jesus walking on water. The second miracle is them reaching the shore safely. And I don't want us to miss this because Jesus isn't the kind of king, the kind of miracle worker, the way maker, who does something powerful just to be seen as powerful. And this is, when you think about the ancient world and the ancient gods of the Greeks and the Romans, I mean, I, I just did a little bit of research. I was reading online, and I'm like, these, these gods were crazy. They were very selfish, very self-centered. This, by the way, when Jesus was doing this, people believed in gods. There weren't really a lot of atheists. Everyone believed in some kind of God, and the Greeks and the Romans had their own gods. And if you look at these gods, they're just like, they were selfish, self-centered. They did all these things to make humans' lives more miserable or tricky, and they used their power sometimes just showing it off. And it would be common and understandable for a god to just like walk on the water to show off and then go back to shore and like find your own way. That's what you would expect from like other types of god. But Jesus shows up, and even in the miracle where it's like clearly the whole point of the miracle is to tell you that I am God, Even then, there was a practical purpose. All seven signs, all seven miracles of Jesus had a practical purpose. Don't overlook that. Every time Jesus shows up and does something to reveal God's power, it was to help somebody. Just just pause and think for a second, just so far in this series. Jesus' first miracle. Who were the people Jesus was helping? Jesus' first miracle was at a wedding. I love that. Just everyday people celebrating life's big events, and Jesus showed up and did something phenomenal. And we ask ourselves, like, what does this look like? In our, where is Jesus going to show up and do something amazing? It might be just in everyday life when we're celebrating life's big moments. Uh, the, the second one, um, there was uh, the story of the royal official, who, uh, a child who gets, like, brought back to life. So here's somebody, Jesus shows up and helps somebody. Um, Another one was somebody who had suffered too long. 
Remember uh, somebody who was by the pool of water and had been paralyzed for most of his life? Jesus showed up and, and met somebody who had suffered too long. Um, and with the hungry crowds, I love this. Think about this. One of Jesus' practical miracles were for thousands of people, and many of them later in this chapter stopped following Jesus. One of Jesus' seven signs, one of Jesus' seven miracles were for people who eventually didn't want anything to do with Jesus. This is profound. When we talk about what it means to be like Jesus, God might be calling us to bless people who don't want anything to do with Jesus. We can still serve people in the name of Jesus who don't know Jesus or think they might be interested in following Jesus until they find out what Jesus requires of them and then decides they don't want anything to do with it. But I don't think at any moment did Jesus say, man, I wish I wouldn't have helped them, ungrateful. No, that's not who Jesus is. And even here with the disciples, there was this miracle that saved the disciples in the midst of a storm. I, I love this idea that God shows up to do something in our lives because we need it. I, I know that a lot of us have different perspectives of who God is. I was, I was talking with somebody recently and somebody who, who loves God and who God loves, and they were just being honest with me about how, you know, we tend still to this day view God as judgmental or view God as disappointed or view God as angry. Maybe that's you. Do you find yourself defaulting to that? Viewing God as somebody who's, you know, just not interested in the affairs of your life or not interested in, who doesn't seem to show up in the storms. I love these stories because they remind me that when God shows up, it's not for God's sake. It's for ours. That God wants to break into whatever is going on into your life. Whatever the, the struggle is that you have, whatever that fear, whatever that insecurity, whatever, whatever it is for you that God wants to break in, walk across, there's nothing that can separate you from God, even a storm, and God can walk across the waters, meet you in the boat, and be there for you. That's who Jesus is. Let's pray. God, we come before you and we give you thanks. Lord, I lift up especially those who are watching, listening, um, who find themselves in a difficult place, who have recently felt overwhelmed, who recently felt like they were in that boat where they're paddling, but it doesn't seem to do any good, and they're just treading water, and they're not sure if it's going to capsize, and they don't know if they're going to make it another day, and they feel overwhelmed. God, I trust in your presence. In the name of Jesus, reach out and meet them. Meet them right now. Through the power of your Holy Spirit, hover over the waters and meet us right where we are. Help us. God, I can talk all day long. They can do very little good without your spirit. So God, I just ask and I plead that you show up in our lives, especially those right now who are so hungry for it. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.